Manchester's indie rock and roll station, XS Manchester. The XS Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. XS Manchester. You're right, I'm Jim, and welcome to another episode of The Excess Long Player, where I take a classic album and deep dive into it with one of the people who made it. Back to 1991 today to talk about the release of The Farms' debut album Spartacus in the company of the man himself, Peter Hooten. Good chat this with Peter about an album that, if I'm honest, I've not listened to right the way through in a long, long time before preparing for this episode. But what an album it is scene defining you might call it and with a political angle to it i don't think i picked up when i listened to it back in the 90s loads of great stories from peter including his thoughts on everton making the iconic all together now a cup final song which must have been an interesting thing from a liverpool fan's perspective and the truth behind those infamous rumors concerning an ongoing conflict between the farm and oasis if this is your first time to the XS Long Player, make sure you check out the episodes back in the timeline. Some fantastic conversations about some of the greatest albums of all time. So check that out. But for now, get settled and listen to Peter Hooten from The Farm talking about their debut album, Spartacus. Peter, thanks for joining us on the show today. So we're going to talk about The Farm's debut album, Spartacus. And yeah. right before we get into the nuts and bolts of this album, I'm interested in your journey into becoming a songwriter? Because I'm not sure I'd call you a reluctant songwriter, but certainly originally it wasn't something that maybe you'd had the confidence of doing. What was the spark that made you want to start writing music? I'd always been interested in music, of course, and I'd been in, like, in a get-together, a school band and that type of thing, but uh, there were pretty dominant figures in that, you know, so never, I never got the chance to write, really, you know. I was the George Harrison of the uh, setup, you know. <laughs> uh, but I think it was after John Lennon got shot dead, I think. I just started writing my thoughts down, you know, because it was such a traumatic uh, moment in time, really, mm. wasn't it? You know, and everyone, you know, I mean, it was such an outpouring of grief. And I just started writing. I didn't know the lyrics. They were like poems, you know. And so that's how I got into it. But I'd never really intended to be a singer or anything. It was just... It was all just serendipity and by chance, you know. I mean, being in a group, as I say, when I was younger, but then I played the bass guitar. I think Sid Vicious was probably more accomplished than me, you know, but uh, <laughs> I played the bass guitar, but never really took it up seriously, you know. But um, I was staying in my mates one night in a place called Mellon, which is just outside Kirby, at Aintree. And it was during the, um, you know, when the licensing hours used to shut for a few hours on a Sunday, just after midday, you know, and uh, his brother's band were playing. I said, oh, what's that? I said, oh, that's our Ollie's band. So I said, oh, go and have a listen to them. So we went to have a listen to them. And I said, where's your singing? It was just a load of people jamming, really, you know. So that's how I said, oh, I'll get up and have a go, if you want. And everyone said, oh, if you want to go, have a go, have a go. And that's how it started. That's a very uniquely Liverpool thing, I think, because I've, when I've, I'm obviously based in Manchester, but when I've been to Liverpool, there's been similar things going on. It's kind of like, it's a very musical city anyway, but it's very much a lot of the bars and clubs and particularly up and down like Matthew Street. It's kind of like a get up and have a go environment. Yeah, well, I think it is a musical city and I think, you know, um, there's numerous theories for that, but I think definitely the, the Irish and Welsh influence on the city is pretty important, you know, and I think 
the artist brought over the tradition of sing songs in pubs. And, you know, I'm not saying Liverpool was the only city that did that, but it, it had a, a particular a particular history of doing that. And I always remember when I was a kid at Christmas and, you know, various occasions, all my aunties and uncles getting round and singing, you know. And everyone had to have a song and you, you pointed, you know, your turn next, your turn next, you know. And they tried to encourage the kids, us, to get involved, but... No one would really sing, you know, but I had a go once of uh, a song from uh, West Side Story. I think it was called Somewhere, I think it was, you know. So I had a go at that, you know, just because I thought, let's have mm. a go at it, you know. And they, they all seemed to be having a great time. And some of the songs I've never heard before or since, you know, they were like traditional songs, you know. And I always remember, distinctly remember one of them, maybe you're Irish, come into the parlour. I don't know the rest of the words, but I just remember <laughs> that, that statement, you know, and... I think, yeah, it was a tradition and a working-class tradition, but probably a lot down to the Irish influence. You know? And, of course, there was a lot of uh, Welsh in Liverpool as well. I read somewhere that at one stage in the 19th century, there were 70 Welsh Methodist churches, and they would have been Welsh-speaking. And obviously, mm-hmm. what are, are the Welsh famous for? Oh, singing. <laughs> so I think there was, you know, there was definitely a, a tradition of get up and have a go, you know. Well, West Side Story was a bit of a musical shift to where you ended up with the farm. And even in the early days of the band, there was a musical shift there as well. Because I understand that before you kind of got involved in the baggy psychedelic scene and that kind of genre that I'd put Spartacus into, your interests or the sound of the band in those early stages was more aligned with the clash and the jam and those kind of punk sounds. What was it that inspired the change to go from that kind of quite edgy punk stuff to the the kind of baggy psychedelic side yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I don't like to call it baggy because I, I don't know even know what that means. But and I remember the NMA and sounds and melody makers searching around for a, a term to call it, you know, and it was mm. scallydelic and that type of thing, you know. But nothing ever. Indie dance was the, probably the one that, that stuck, you know. But um, it was Big Odo Dynamite, believe it or not. Mick Jones and The Clash obviously formed with Don Letts. And I went to see them in Liverpool in a, a nightclub called The State. And it just blew me mind. All the samples from Spaghetti Westerns and all mm. the different drum beats and all the New York influences, all the New York street influences that Mick and Don Letts had picked up, you know. I remember I was with Carl Hunter from the band and I think it was with Simon Moran from SJM uh, because he was you know, a big friend of the farm, you know, and he was helping us out at the time. And I was just, I was like, after that, I was evangelical. I was going, you want to hear this band? It's unbelievable, you know incorporating those two styles of music of like hip-hop beats and R&B beats and, uh, and indie. And that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And I thought, it, I thought so it, it took two or three years to get it, for us to get the confidence to get a sampler, basically, you know, and, and, uh, and try it out, you know. And we had a bit of financial backing because those early samplers were very expensive, you know. And we got someone to financially back us so we could afford a sampler. And we said to one of the brass section, learn this. <laughs> and he did. And he ended up working. He ended up working <laughs> after the farm with the Happy Mondays. And then he went on to take that and other groups. And, you know, he was in demand because he knew uh, the whole sampling system mm. and, and the whole backing track system, you know. It's amazing how many bands ended up incorporating into their sound something that they just happened to have bought because it looked cool. Had no idea how to use it, but they bought it and went, hey, we'll, we'll give this a go. We'll work it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was... You know, it was uh, revolutionary. You know, it was um, people didn't know what to expect. And some bands, you know, if you listen to 
like the Chemical Brothers, you know, and, and the Orb and groups like that, you know. Massive Attack, you know, they were brilliant exponents of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And they never classed in that, uh, as you said before, the indie dance, but they were using samplers, same as groups like those in the Happy Mondays were, you know. It's interesting you mention samples because that is a theme that runs through the album and it kicks off the album with a quote from Taxi Driver, which I guess was kind of you caught in controversy from the very start of the album because I think you claimed that the lines in that song were improvised rather than yeah. sampled from the original film. Was that purely yeah. kind of like a, a rights issue? Yeah, yeah. We got one of our mates who's an actor and his brilliant impersonator to impersonate all the voices and he was brilliant, you know. And, um, you know, they sound like the originals, don't they? I mean, yeah. they sound like the originals. So, you know, it was a, it was a case of having to do it, you know, because we knew people were getting sued for using samples which they hadn't cleared, you know. That's quite forward thinking of a young band who were kind of just setting out to have that kind of consideration about what you can and can't use and being that cautious about it. I guess it must have been, if you want to use samples, that must be something that's quite difficult to almost difficult to juggle in your head kind of wanting to use certain pieces of audio but then thinking oh hang on we could get knackered for this down the line yeah we were thinking of that i mean there's probably a few cases at the time in the in the press i think probably about people using uh, samples which they hadn't agreed i think della soul were getting sued by various people you know and so it was newsworthy so we thought we better cover our backs here you know one of the things that i picked up on listening back to this album and i definitely didn't pick this up in the early 90s when I was listening to it. I think I was far too young to look this deeply into it, but was the political themes that run right through many of the tunes. And even with that opening track, Hearts and Minds, which is something you look back on, intrinsically linked with a lot of the politics of the time. I think think Hearts and Minds was one of the phrases used by Margaret Thatcher in one of her speeches around the time of the release as well. Did you see music at this time and the music you were making as a force for change for your yeah. ability to get your voice heard and do something different yeah you see groups that we'd always admired like the clash specials and the jam you know their songs meant something you know so we wanted even though that period was regarded as throwaway hedonism you mm-hmm. know we wanted to make a political statement and i think as you say one of the first people to mention this but throughout the album is politics really and altogether now it's a political statement you know it's about it's an anti-war song you know groovy train was about a girl and i know who was into politics and then found ecstasy and rejected politics you know so there was all sorts of themes going running through it you know on the topic of altogether now which i think is probably one of the most recognized songs on the album yeah i understand the original version was six had six verses on it which yeah. Suggs who was the producer in the album as in Suggs from Madness he was producing yeah. he cut down to a kind of radio friendly three verses in yeah, the end right, yeah. was that what he brought to the table as a producer kind of an understanding of the yeah. music industry how it worked and the commercial side of it yeah I mean at the time I wasn't I wanted the six verses in but when your mentor Suggs says no I'm telling you we need we only need three <laughs> you've got to take his word for it I mean and he brought those type of ideas. I suppose we were young and naive and thinking, you know, we want the full story in because the original track, No Man's Land, had a story about Lord Kitchener having to go to the House of Parliament and explain to politicians why there wasn't any fighting going on in the Western Front, you know, but I think Suggs was right. You know, it makes its point. It's very much a tune that has 
stood the test of time that it was a definitive tune of the early 90s and it's had a fair few incarnations since. I was trying to come up with a list. It's been an Everton Cup final song, I think. It was oh. covered by Atomic Kitten. Oh I think it's God, been in a John Lewis. I think, yeah, yeah. I think it's been in a John Lewis advert too, hasn't it? I was wondering, how, how do you feel about those uh, different genesises of the song, particularly as a Liverpool fan, the Everton version? Yeah, oh, you know, I mean, I found out a couple of years ago when England used it for 2004 for the Euros that England were going to use all together now for the Euro 96. But because Everton used it, they asked um, the Lightning Seeds to write a new song. And that's yeah. how you got Three Lions, you know. We didn't know that till later on, obviously, but I didn't want Everton to use it. And, you know, I've got to be honest about this. Not because it was Everton, just because I didn't want the lyrics changed. I didn't want it to be belittled by being a throwaway flipping. It was a political song, so mm. I, I didn't want that. But... um we had a guitarist in the group called Keith Mullen, who's still in the group, and he's an Evertonian. He said, oh, you know, my lad's is looking forward to meeting the team, going down to Wembley, and we've been promised all sorts and all that. And it had already been recorded by session musicians in London, so it just needed a vocal on it. So I said, look, I, I, I'm not to do with it, Keith, you know, but mm. I asked my dad. My dad's just been a season to fit older at Anfield since 1962. And I said, what do you think? And he said, well, if you don't let them use it, it's a bit hypocritical, isn't it? Because you're saying enemies coming into no man's land to shake hands. So in the end, I uh, I folded, you know, and let them use it. But I still think it was the wrong idea, just because they changed the lyrics, you know. I, I was thinking about the unity of the band, really, at the time. I thought Keith's going to, if we if we don't let them use it, you know, we could walk, you know. and mm. We'd already split up, actually. But we <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to keep everyone on, you know, on speaking terms rather than ending up in court, you know. I mean, given your political views and that it has got this kind of like outspoken political thread running through the album, do you get disappointed when the meaning is lost? And like you say, it gets kind of chucked into that. I remember a few reviews at the time kind of saying the album didn't really have much substance from a writing perspective, where clearly that's just them not getting the album rather than actually the lack of substance in it. Do you get disappointed when you heard that kind of thing? No, I mean, the album reviews at the time were uh, glowing, you know. And they've got album of the month in Vox, album of the week in the NME. There were a few jailers, though, who were obviously opposed to us, not only the way we were, but obviously our politics, you know. And there mm. were a few snide remarks, uh, I remember them, you know. But I'd say 95% of the reviews were brilliant, and especially in America where... Liverpool didn't have those connotations and left wing didn't have those connotations. So just people people just listen to the album, you know. I mean, I'm not disappointed at that because, you know, that's people's opinions and they're entitled to their opinion. But I always remember reviewing me, we did in Belfast and it was brilliant and everyone who was there thought one of, one of the great nights in Belfast, you know, they said, of, of concerts, you know, both communities singing all together now and it was really emotional. And the reviewer just didn't understand it. He just didn't get it, you know. Either they deliberately didn't get it or, you know, for whatever reason, you know. But for me, that was a symbolic moment. But in Belfast mm. in 1991, the troubles were still going on. And you've got both communities there singing a peace song, you know. It was unbelievable, you know. And and people still get in touch with us now over that, you know, saying one of the greatest nights they'd ever had in Belfast, you know, in terms of uh, concerts, you know. And thinking about mm. all the groups that have played there, we were flattered by that, you know. The one thing about Spartacus and all together now is the Germans really get it, you know. 
I mean, right. there's been so many cover versions in Germany, techno mad versions, you know, 150 beats per minute versions. And a lot of them are German and Dutch, you know. Yeah, they get it completely. They get it more than Middle England get it, really, I think. I want you to pick a moment off the album in a moment, if that's cool. Any, anything you remember from the writing or recording or a moment in the studio or just a musical moment that you like, something that's a highlight yeah. for you. But before we do that, I want to talk about the album being number one. Yeah. Do you remember where you were when you got the news that this album had hit that number one spot? Yeah, we were in, I think we were on tour in Brighton. And we obviously, because of the pre-sale and all the publicity surrounding it, we we were expecting it to go to number one, but there wasn't any celebrations on it. There wasn't any, you know, we were just thinking, what about the concert tonight? You know, it was like, it was one of those situations. If we hadn't been on tour, I think we all would have headed to town, had a great, great big uh, piss up, you know. But it didn't happen because we were on tour, you know, because every night was like that anyway. So there was no difference, you know. There was a shrug of the shoulders, basically, and I think, <laughs> not, not that we'd become blasé. We were like in a dream. It was like a, a dream-like state, you know, because you, when you're on tour, you've got so many people on tour with your roadies and catering and everything, and, you know, it's just a case of, uh, let's get on with it, you know, let's get on with it. We're only as good as our last concert type of thing. There was no op- opening bottles of champagne or anything like that, you know. It was just like, it was strange, really, <laughs> and looking back on it. Well, you say you hadn't become blasé, but was there a kind of almost an expectation because of the buzz that had built up around the band? Was it like it felt like you were fulfilling destiny rather than maybe getting a shock result? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, what we were most proud of, that we'd done it ourselves. We'd yeah. taken on the major record labels and done it ourselves. And it was very unusual. A lot of indie groups at the time were distributed by major labels, but we weren't. We were distributed by Pinnacle. We were a pure indie, and Pinnacle at the time said they'd never known anything like it in the indie uh, genre. They'd never known anything like it. The KLF, Bill Drummond used to be ringing our office going, come on, who's behind this? Come on. You know, and it was basically Kevin Sampson, our manager, and the group, and people from Produce who who were supplying the money, you know. There was no great master plan as such. A lot of it was down to Kevin, our manager, you know, and he was the uh, maverick. He was the person who thought he knew what to do, you know, and for 18 months, he was untouchable, you know. But like Mm. every football manager, results start to go wrong, you know. (laughs) I think it was basically, I always remember Simon Moran saying to us, he said, uh, we were playing in Newcastle. It was the end of 91 or 92, I think. And uh, Simon said, "Uh, it hasn't sold out, you know. That was the first time in 18 months a gig hadn't sold out, you know. I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, this group playing at the university called Nirvana. And we'd heard of Nirvana because we toured in America, you know. And we loved them and that, but, you know, they were the new, it was the new wave of, and a lot of the journalists were happy with that because they never understood what the likes of us were doing. They never understood it, you know, because they weren't part of it. They they wanted guitar groups back, so it was like they were, they were going back to what they actually knew about, you know. How did it feel getting that number one album and being kind of thrust into the limelight almost and having the number one album and the sold-out gigs and the top of the pops appearances as well. Yeah. Did you cope with that sudden change of being in the limelight? Yeah. I don't, you know, it was, it was, wouldn't say it was difficult because it wasn't, you know, we just swept along by a, a tidal wave, you know, but you've got to, I think you were thinking this is going to, you know, this, this could end next week, you know, and have you ever listened to 
any groups. That's what they always think. There's a fatalism about them thinking, this can't last, you know, this can't mm-hmm. last. And, you know, during that period, yeah, we were having such a great time. Things didn't register, really. You know, we were, it was like a, it was, a, we were in a, like a dream, like trance, you know, that's what, that's what was happening, you know. And people started to, I wouldn't say everyone acted differently, but people from, uh, we were really hard working in 89 and 1990. By 91, you know, that uh, that had gone a little bit, you know, that had gone of like, uh, you know, sit back, we can, re- you know, we can release, release anything and it'll do well type of thing, you know. There's certainly a, a feeling of that in the group, you know. Peter, I'd like you to pick a, your highlight off the album then. Like I say, it can be a memory from the recording sessions or a favourite track on the album. If you're going to pick one thing, what would it be? Well, we, reca- we uh, recorded most of it in Mayfair Studios in Primrose Hill. And that was before uh, Primrose Hill was a, you know, a, a trendy place. Most of the cafes mm. were shut, you know, it was like a forgotten area really, you know. And uh, so we had some great times around the pubs and bars around there, you know. But I always remember uh, at the time Madness went together, you know, they disbanded. But Chaz Smash was working for Godis, the dancer, you know. And Suggs was producing and, and, and Suggs was saying, oh, Chaz wants to come in and listen to some of the tracks, you know. Suggs must have been telling them about them, you know. And anyway, Chaz, we let Chaz in because we knew him. He came in, listened to them. He said, I've got to let Andy McDonald from Goldus uh, listen to these. They're unbelievable, you know. And so we reluctantly, after a while, let Andy McDonald in, you know. And he listened to some of the tracks and then he heard all together now and he went, that's a Christmas number one. That's a Christmas number one. He said, but if you stay on produce, getting distributed by Pinnacle Records, it won't be. But if you come with me, if you sign to go this now, it will be. And we all just had a bit of a meeting about it and then gave him the answer. Nah, you're all right, Andy. We'll do it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like one of the, I wouldn't say the highlights, but because we we hadn't been signed by a major label, you see, and we'd had loads of near misses where we were saying like, oh, sack the drummer or do this or do everything we say. And, you know, I always remember someone coming to us I think it was Bill Drummond, I think it was, yeah, in the mid-80s saying, you know, I know what you're about, I can see what you're trying to do. And, of course, this was before the Mondays and the Stone Roses and that, you know, and he said, I know what you're going to Just, if I, you know, if I get involved, you just got to do everything I say and you'll end up on top of the pops within 18 months or whatever. And he said, I want you to have hard dogs on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? He said, I want you to have hard dogs on stage. And I just laughed at him and said, Bill, you are joking, aren't you? And uh, anyway, we never took up his offer. I know Tony <laughs> Wilson was um, very interested in the farm. He offered us Gunnar's reports, and we went there and we recorded it, and we did all our stuff, and then it never got shown. And then when a few years later, when we were doing a documentary for Granada about politics and music from Merseyside, we went to find it, and it had been wiped, lost forever. But um, we had a theory that Tony Wilson was thinking... I'm going to get a Manchester band who look exactly like the farm, you know. I think uh, I think that's what happened. You mentioned some pretty iconic Manchester names there, Mondays, Roses, Tony yeah. Wilson. But I understand that back in the day, back in the heyday of the 90s, you had a bit of a run-in with some other famous Manx, namely Liam and Noel Gallagher. Yeah, well, it was, you know, I mean, it's, it's steeped in, uh, I mean, it's never in any of their books, you know, but. The first interview they ever did was in an in, interview in Vox, I think it was, uh, and they just signed to Creation, you know, and uh, it must have been about 93, 
and he said, uh, we made Alan McGee take a post of the farm down, you know. Now, we didn't know why at the time, but Alan McGee's told us since, and he, he said, look, you know, everything the farm did, I was looking at you, and I was looking for a band like that, and it was Oasis, you know. But we'd uh, come across Oasis when they were rehearsing with the real people a lot in Liverpool. The real people had met us in a bar in Liverpool City Centre and said, look, there's this band, and they love you, you know, they... They look just like you, and it's all the image that you've got, you know, that terrace image. And he said, uh, any chance of getting them on the tour as a support? And we already had a tour support called Top, who we were a Liverpool band. So we had to knock them back, you know. And maybe they remembered that. But anyway, in this interview, he said they made Alan McGee take the farm poster down in his office. But Alan said, what would I be doing with a farm poster in my office? And that didn't happen, you know. And then he, he said, hey, the farm, there's just a bunch of chances, you know, but they think they're the Beatles and everything. We didn't know their obsession with the Beatles at the time. We had no idea, you know. So when they played the Lomax, which is a small club, 300 capacity in Liverpool, just when they were um, releasing the first singles, you know. And we went down there and it was much ado about nothing, really. But we sent a couple of lads over to their sound check middle of the afternoon with a picture of us with, uh, with love from the Beatles on. Um, <laughs> Because that's what Tony Wolsey had done uh, with Love from Manchester when he was supporting Liverpool City Council in the 1980s, when right. all the councillors were uh, surcharged, were taking on the Thatcher government, you know. So we thought if they know the history, they'll know what that means. That's a peace offering, really. So anyway, they wouldn't come over to the pub because they thought it was a setup. They thought we were after them, you know. We went to try and get in the gig. So we walked up about 10 of us to the farm and a few mates, you know. And uh, they said, sorry, lads, we've been told by Oasis and management not to let the farm in. <laughs> wow, blacklisted. So um, we said, OK, yeah. So we started discussing the reasons and that. And in the end, we got it. They let us in, you know, because they couldn't really say no, you know. So we watched the band and, you know, the early concert, it was, you know, it was it was electric, you know, and it was great guitar sounds and that. And we enjoyed it. And then after the concert, I think Noel and Liam came to the bar and a few of us were having a drink and they were saying, we never said that about you, we never said that, we never said that, you know, it's the journalist made it up, made journalist, man, we just oh, say, so what, you know, it's, that's the way it is in the media, you know. Anyway, in the meantime, there was a few, uh, I won't name the members of the group, but some of the members of the group and our management were, were outside and when the group Oasis come up the stairs, you know, to go get into the van, yeah, they said, and were confrontational. They said, well, just being with the farm downstairs. And they go, no, this is the real farm. <laughs> <laughs> so they went back into the dressing rooms to get away from them, you know. In the meantime, he said the culprits uh, let down the tyres of their, of their bus, which was nothing to do with me and a few mm. of the others, you know, but uh, it happened. And uh, But it's never, ever wow. been mentioned because it didn't, you know, it doesn't fit in with the uh, with the image, does it? I knew the week later that, you know, the tide was going out on the farm and the uh, Oasis, their yeah. press officer had more pull because it said in the NME, there was a, a alleged, there was going to be a, a the farm were going to uh, confront Oasis over what they'd written about them in a, in a paper. But on the night when it came, the farm were nowhere to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> a complete and utter lie. But, <laughs> you know, we knew then, you know, the NME are going to champion this, the, these lads and uh, and they, obviously they went on to uh, to do brilliant things, didn't they, in terms of you know, the sales and that, you know. But everything I told you there is the, is the truth, you know. 
And I've seen them since, you know, and there's there's mm. no... I mean, in fact, I saw Liam a few weeks later, believe it or not, at a Blair gig in Manchester. And he come up wow. again, he was saying, eh, never said that, you know, we never said that, you know, letting the ties down, it's out of order, we never said that. And I just turned around to him, and he wasn't a famous character then. I just said to him, eh, that's showbiz, lad, forget about it, <laughs> you know. Before I let you go, Peter... You've just passed the 30th anniversary of this album a couple of years back. Yeah. And yeah, I know yeah. you did a lot of chat around that and a lot of looking back <clears throat> at the album. Yeah. Now you do look back at it through the mists of time and you, yeah. I'm sure you've listened back to it at some point since. Is there anything you regret? Is there anything you hear and you go, if I had my time again, I'd just tweak that or I'd just change that? No, I think it stands the test of time. And I think if you listen to it, yeah, it does... A lot of people say that, you know, when they get in touch, they say it, it does stand up because a lot of the songs were uh, original songs in the 80s, but we had to adapt them to use, you know, uh, hip-hop beats and that type of thing. But if you listen to Groovy Train, Groovy Train's uh, got a, a a loop on it by third bass through the American uh, New York hip-hop band, you know. And we, when we went on tour with Big Audio Dynamite in 91, we toured all America with them. There was a group called Downtown Science, and Sam Seavers, who did all those loops for third bass, was in Downtown Science. And he was at a sound check and he was listening to uh, our sound check. And he came up to the stage and went, I recognize a few of those beats. <laughs> and we said, uh, I know, Sam, how much do we owe you? And he went, No, man, I'm flattered, I'm flattered. He was the top man, you know, in that, in that period in New York, you mm. know, so. I don't think there is anything I changed from uh, the tracks. I don't think there is, no. You know, I mean, there's a remix album on the vinyl by Terry Farley and Pete Heller, and some of the some of the remixes on that are, are like exceptional. You can get them on Spotify now. It's the 30th right. anniversary edition. But no, there's, I don't think there's anything on there. Which I, the only regret I've got is that we didn't put Stepping Stone on there. Right, which we which should is have the done. Maybe first single, wasn't it, that you released yeah, before the album? Yeah, we should have put that on. We were being too cool for school. We were thinking all the people who were in a beat in nineteen ninety, and all the boys over and flying crowd who popularised Stepping Stone, they'll be upset if it's on an album, you know. But we should just put it on the album. And then Kevin mm. said to us, Kevin Sampson, our manager, said, "What you should do after Spartacus is re-release Stepping Stone," and and we disagreed with him, you know. And he was in the right, we were in the wrong, you know. This is what happens with bands. As soon as you get successful, everyone in the band thinks it was down to their opinion that you got successful instead of leaving it to, you know, the likes of Kevin who was giving us advice for 18 months, you know. And he was right. We should have either put it on the album and released it as a single or just released it as a single anyway. I wish Stepping Stone was on the album. I think it might have been on the American version. So I think that's one of the only regrets I've got it, that we didn't have Stepping Stone on there. If that's your only regret, you're doing all right. Peter, it's really nice to talk to you about this classic album. I really enjoyed rediscovering the album and listening to it in a completely different way to I listened to it when it first came out in the 90s. I'm going to put a link to the album classic version and a link to the remixes that you just mentioned oh, in okay. the podcast Brilliant. description as well so people can find Brilliant. them there. So, yo, uh, when you listen to it again, did you think it stood the test of time? Yeah, completely. I mean, like I say, it's, it's of an over time to me but at the same time listening to it now with 30 years distance between it being released i can i can hear different things in it now that i wouldn't have picked up to before and part of that's my age and part of that's my life experience but yeah. part of it's listening to it in the frame of the music that came after as well so in my view 100 yeah. percent. okay that'll do me <laughs> peter really appreciate your time on the excess long player pleasure thank you the 
first Manchester long player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. Nice one, Peter, and nice one to you for listening to the Excess Long Player, another album boxed off. If this has whetted your appetite to get the inside scoop, the hidden stories behind more of your favourite albums, do look at some of the episodes that have come before. If you're into this episode, if you like the Farm Spartacus, then you're probably going to like the Oasis episodes. There's two of them, one about Be Here Now and one about Definitely Maybe with Alan McGee talking us through that album. I reckon the Happy Mondays episode with Gaz Whelan, that might tickle your fancy. And maybe if the Liverpool thing is your jam, then the Lightning Seeds episode, talking about jollification with the legend that is Ian Brody. Have a listen to that one. But you know what? Just have a look back through the timeline, see if you can spot some of your favourite albums and get stuck in. I'll see you next time. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester.